Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July 5th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A federal judge reaffirmed the disqualification of the state fund attorneys, Houston Hennigan, from the $160 million medical fraud case it brought three years ago on behalf of its now former client. The 75-page ruling details how the concurrent representation of the state fund and at the same time defendant Paul Randall in his criminal case betrayed both parties. The defendants in the Skiff civil case that started in 2013 stand accused of submitting fraudulent insurance bills and providing or receiving illegal kickbacks. The litigation involves dozens of defendants, two civil suits, and a criminal suit, and well over a thousand filings spanning three years and three dockets. The U.S. Department of Justice filed criminal charges against some of these defendants for the same kickback scheme. One of them, Paul Richard Randall, a healthcare marketer previously affiliated with the Pacific Hospital and Tri-City Regional Medical Center in Hawaiian Gardens, pleaded guilty on April 16, 2012 to conspiracy to commit mail fraud. Randall has not been sentenced yet. In the civil case, the state fund was at first represented by the law firm of Irel and Manella. Last year, John Houston and Brian Hennigan, along with 30 or so other lawyers, left Irel and Manella to form Houston Hennigan. Their Houston and Hennigan other lawyers continued to represent the state fund. The most recent round of motions in the Skiff-Rigo case focused on the question about whether a law firm could represent a criminal and his victim. One of the civil defendants discovered that Houston Hannigan had represented Randall in one of the criminal cases and possibly a related civil case and filed a motion to disqualify that firm. After considering about a thousand pages of documents and more than four hours of oral argument on this disqualification issue, the court confirmed that disqualification was appropriate and necessary. The ruling pointed out that representing a client in a criminal case creates a requirement for unshakable loyalty. A lawyer needs to know the worst facts to give clients the best advice. Clients cannot feel comfortable providing such candor unless they know their lawyer is absolutely committed to advancing the client's interests and advocating against the conflicting interests of others. Although the rest of the world may be united against them, clients need to know that at least their lawyer will reliably remain in their corner even in the face of great temptation. The importance and impact of loyalty in the attorney-client relationship extends beyond the client and counsel to courts as well. The court point pointed out that under our system of law, judges rely on adversarial advocates to help ensure that courts reach the right result. Adversarial advocacy assumes that lawyers are fiercely loyal in representing their clients. If that loyalty does not exist, the engine of our legal system cannot run and justice cannot be administered. 
A Houston Hennigan spokeswoman said that outside experts have consistently validated the firm's actions in dealing with the conflict. But for now, the state fund will seek new counsel. Some Obamacare insurers have been forced to file litigation to recover the promised risk corridor funds they need to pay for the massive losses mounting up under the health care program. These same insurers were the ones that helped cheerlead the creation of Obamacare with plenty of encouragement from others. Six years later, profit expectations have failed to materialize, and now some insurers want taxpayers to provide them the anticipated profits through a lawsuit they have filed. Blue Cross, Blue Shield of North Carolina, and Moda Health Plan joined a growing list of insurers suing the Department of Health and Human Services in the United States Court of Federal Claims for more subsidies from the Risk Corridor Program. Congress set up the program to indemnify insurers who took losses in the first three years of Obamacare with funds generated from taxes on excess profits from some insurers. The point of the program was to allow insurers to use the first few years to grasp the utilization cycle and to scale premiums accordingly. But utilization rates went off the charts and the predicted large windfall from excess profits taxes never materialized. But the losses requiring indemnification went far beyond expectations. In response, HHS started shifting funds appropriated by Congress to the Risk Corridor Program, which would have resulted in an almost unlimited bailout of the insurers. Senator Marco Rubio led a fight in Congress to bar use of any appropriated funds for risk corridor subsidies, which the White House was forced to accept as part of a budget deal. And that left insurers holding the bag. They now are suing HHS to recoup the promised subsidies. Moda Health is seeking $180 million dollars. And North Carolina Blue is seeking $147.5 million in payments. Healthcare Republic Insurance Company of Oregon was the first carrier to sue over the risk corridor payment program. Health Republic said it was owed a total of $22.1 million in risk corridors program money for 2014 and 15, and it sued for about $5 billion in payments on behalf of all affected insurers. Highmark, a big blue cross and blue shield carrier in Pennsylvania, sued for $223 million in May. But HHS has its hands tied, and courts are highly unlikely to have authority to force Congress to appropriate more funds. In fact, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services formally responded by telling insurers that they have no requirement to offer payment until the fall of 2017 at the end of the Risk Corridor Program. And now our crime report the Department of Justice lost its first Yates Memo criminal jury trial against a drug maker's president. In 2015, the Department of Justice released the Yates Memo, which reaffirmed the government's commitment to prosecute culpable individuals in cases involving suspected corporate fraud. 
The healthcare industry was anxious to see how this would play out given the government's aggressive pursuit of healthcare fraudsters. The best-known test case came when the government announced in October that it had arrested W. Carl Reichel, the former president of drug maker Warner Chilcott. Reichel was indicted and charged with a single count of conspiring to pay kickbacks to physicians in violation of the anti-kickback statute. The Department of Justice announced the Reichel indictment on the same day that his company had agreed to plead guilty to a felony charge of health care fraud. This plea agreement was part of a global settlement under which Warner Chilcott would pay $125 million to resolve criminal and civil liability arising from certain marketing activities. The government held up Reichel's personal indictment as an example of its commitment to not only hold companies accountable, but also identifying, identifying and charging responsible corporate officials. But the government's case did not go as anticipated, and last week, when he was acquitted after a federal jury trial. The alleged kickbacks were in the form of free dinners, speaker fees paid for speeches that were never given, and free food and drinks for the physician's staff and family members who filled out prior authorizations for the company's drugs. The indictment further alleged that Reichel, as the president, along with other senior executives, gave sales representatives nearly unlimited expense accounts to take physicians for biweekly medical education programs, which were in fact just free, expensive dinners with no educational component. Physicians were paid speaker fees of $600 to $1,200 to speak at these medical educational programs, but in reality did not give any clinical lectures. In return for these dinners and speaking fees, Reichel was alleged to have instructed sales representatives to follow up with the physicians who attended the dinners and ensure that they ordered a sufficient number of Warner Chilcott drugs. Physicians who did not do so were no longer invited to dinners or were terminated as speakers until their prescribing habits changed. Reichel battled for months with the Department of Justice attorneys over discovery issues in his criminal case. The case then went to trial, and this June, after two days of deliberations, the jury acquitted Reichel. During the trial, the government presented evidence that under Reichel's oversight, Warner Chilcott paid for 200,000 dinner tabs, provided clients with $100 stakes and sailing trips to Rhode Island, and paid $25 million in speaker fees. To make its case, the government relied upon testimony from members of Warner Chilcott's sales staff, some of whom had entered into plea agreements with the government expecting lesser sentences in exchange for their testimony against Reichel. Reichel, in turn, argued that the only quid pro quo at issue was the government's deals with these witnesses, whom his lawyers characterized as admitted felons who ignored company policies. The Reichel acquittal may be an early sign that despite the government's renewed commitment to prosecuting individuals under the Yates memo, juries may be setting a higher bar for holding individuals responsible for corporate wrongdoing.
63-year-old Robert Messier, who lives in Westminster, was arrested on 32 felony counts of grand theft, insurance fraud, and forgery after acting as an insurance agent to allegedly steal more than $140,000 from several business owners. He allegedly began illegally managing MRM insurance after a relative's license expired in 2009. The relative had been operating the agency which gave Messier access to client files and allowed him to implement various schemes to bilk premiums from unsuspecting policyholders. After receiving a referral from a business owner who discovered Messier had issued them a bogus insurance certificate listing a non-existent insurance company, the Department of Insurance launched an investigation. Authorities claim Messier issued bogus insurance documents, overcharged several times the amount of the premium, provided inflated billings without disclosing the true cost of the coverage to customers, renewed policies without forwarding premium payments, and even solicited new insurance business, all without a proper license. Messier was booked into the Orange County Jail, and his bail is set at $100,000. The Orange County District Attorney's Office is prosecuting this case. And in regulatory news... California Insurance Company and Applied Underwriters Captive Risk Assurance Company, both Berkshire Hathaway companies, were issued a cease and desist order from the California Department of Insurance. The order followed Commissioner Jones's decision in the Shasta-Lennon case that they used unapproved rates in a complex insurance scheme that circumvented regulatory review of their policies. The ceased and desist order requires California Insurance Company and Applied Underwriters Captive Risk Assurance Company to stop selling unfiled insurance policies and stop renewing policies that have not been filed with the department. Last week, Commissioner Jones announced that under an elaborate scheme, California Insurance Company has been selling an insurance product called Equity Comp that essentially left a California small family-owned business to be self-insured. Jones ruled that this complex insurance scheme circumvented regulatory review and found it to be void as a matter of law. Licensed insurance brokers could face license suspension or non-renewal if they are found to knowingly misrepresent the terms or effect of an insurance policy to their clients. The commissioners warned that brokers that continue to sell or renew these policies and represent them as lawful workers' compensation policies are violating their responsibility to their clients and are not in compliance with the insurance code. But the attorneys for applied underwriters disagree with the commissioner's decision and are exploring options. The attorney for the insured has filed a federal class action lawsuit in the Eastern District of California against Applied Underwriters and its affiliate entities. The DWC has posted an order adjusting the Durable Medical Equipment, Prosthetics, Orthotics, and Supplies section of the official medical fee schedule. This will conform the OMFS to the third quarter 2016 changes in the Medicare payment system as required by the California Labor Code. 
The update includes all changes identified in CMS and Medicaid Services Change Request Number 9642. The CMS issues instructions for implementing and updating DME POS payment amounts on a semiannual basis in January and July, with quarterly updates as necessary. The rates are adjusted using information from the Competitive Bidding Program and are calculated by CMS. The order, effective for services on or after July 1, 2016, adopts the Medicare DME POS quarterly update for calendar year 2016. The order adopting the official medical fee schedule adjustment is posted online at the DWC website. The issue of the use of medical marijuana for treatment in workers' compensation cases has yet to overcome the hurdle of evidence-based medicine published in treatment guidelines. With that problem unresolved, marijuana in California may soon become commonly used by anyone in the state for recreational purposes, much to the consternation of those that say it actually is a physical and mental health hazard. The California Secretary of State's office said the issue would likely be put to voters on the November ballot. The proposed Adult Use of Marijuana Act is supported by Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom and former Facebook President Sean Parker, among others. It would allow people aged 21 and older to possess as much as an ounce of marijuana for private recreational use and permit personal cultivation of as many as six marijuana plants. The measure would also establish a system to license, regulate, and tax sales of marijuana while allowing city governments to exercise local control over or disallow commercial distribution within their borders. The initiative required just over 402,000 valid signatures to qualify for the ballot, and this has exceeded that amount. Opinion polls show attitudes have shifted more in favor of liberalized marijuana laws since California voters defeated a recreational cannabis initiative back in 2010. California would join Colorado, Washington, Alaska, and Oregon as states that allow recreational use of marijuana. And eight other states also have marijuana measures on their ballots this year. California led the way in legalizing marijuana for medical purposes in 1996 with 22 other states and the District of Columbia following suit. Yet, cannabis remains classified as an illegal narcotic under U.S. law. The campaign for the initiative has raised more than $3.7 million to push the initiative, including contributions from former Facebook president Sean Parker. Opposition is led by the Coalition for Responsible Drug Policies, made up of law enforcement and health groups, including the California Police Chiefs Association, the California Hospital Association, and the California State Sheriff's Association. The groups warn that legalization will lead to more drugged driving and allow dealers of harder drugs to have a role in the new industry. The opposition has raised about $125,000 so far from groups including the Association of Los Angeles Deputy Sheriff's State PAC 
and the Los Angeles County Professional Peace Officers Association. A similar coalition helped defeat the last legalization measure in California, Proposition 19, back in 2010. If it passes, the Adult Use of Marijuana Act is expected to bring in several hundred million dollars annually to state and local governments. How this plays out in terms of medical treatment and workers' compensation claims and the possible involvement of medical marijuana in the months and years to come is at this point anyone's guess. The WCIRB submitted its January 1, 2017 regulatory filing to the California Department of Insurance. Among the proposed amendments to the Uniform Statistical Rating Plan are changes to the standard classification system and to the definition of medical-only claims to specify that all claims, including first aid claims, must be reported to the WCIRB. The filing also contains proposed amendments to the experience rating plan, including changes to the experience modification worksheet. The complete filing containing all of the WCIRB's proposed changes and any related documents are available in the publications and filings section of the WCIRB website. The WCIRB website will be updated to provide a copy of the Notice of Proposed Action and Notice of Public Comment once it is received from the California Department of Insurance. This filing does not contain proposed changes to the advisory pure premium rates. The WCIRB anticipates submitting the January 1, 2017 pure premium rate filing this August. And in medical news, questions mount over whether health insurer Anthem's proposed $48 billion purchase of Cigna Corporation will win U.S. antitrust approval. More than 154 million people receive health benefits through employers, many of them large national corporations. The large employer market is a top concern for U.S. Department of Justice regulators reviewing the Anthem deal. The government could block a deal if it finds evidence it would drive up the costs of such coverage. Anthem and Sega, the nation's number two and number five health insurers, are among a handful of carriers selling national coverage plans to employers with thousands of workers across many states. Anthem has said that a bigger Anthem could drive better deals from doctors and hospitals and pass savings on to these customers. In addition, Anthem has argued that there still will be plenty of competition. Large employers pit smaller local insurers' bids against those of large national carriers in regional markets. But an independent analysis found that a majority of large employers buy workers' health benefits from just one or two insurers. Among 75 companies representing a cross-section of industries, 54% used a single insurer and 26% used just two. The Justice Department is also reviewing Aetna's proposed $34 billion purchase of Humana. 
If both acquisitions were approved, it would result in an unprecedented consolidation of the top insurers from five to just three. The deal has raised opposition from leading medical groups, California's insurance commissioner, and Democratic lawmakers. A 3D bioprinting process may one day create cartilage patches for worn-out joints. A team of engineers at the Pennsylvania State University that specializes in manufacturing and tissue engineering have published numerous articles about their pioneering efforts with bioprinting. Cartilage is a good tissue to target for bioprinting because it is made up of only one cell type and has no blood vessels within the tissue. It is also a tissue that cannot repair itself. Once cartilage is damaged, it remains damaged. Previous attempts at growing cartilage began with cells embedded in a hydrogel, a substance composed of polymer chains and about 90% water that is used as a scaffold to grow the tissue. But hydrogels do not allow cells to grow as normal since it confines the cells and does not allow them to communicate as they do in native tissues. This leads to tissues that do not have sufficient mechanical integrity. Degradation of the hydrogel also can produce toxic compounds that are detrimental to cell growth. But now the research team developed a method to produce larger scale tissues without using a scaffold. They create a tiny tube made of alginate, an algae extract. They inject cartilage cells into the tube and allow them to grow for about a week and adhere to each other. Because cells do not stick to alginate, they can remove the tube and are left with a strand of cartilage. The cartilage strand substitutes for ink in the 3D printing process. Using a specially designed prototype nozzle that can hold and feed the cartilage strand, the 3D printer lays down rows of cartilage strands in any pattern the researchers choose. After about half an hour, the cartilage patch self-adheres enough to move to a Petri dish. The researchers put the patch in nutrient media to allow it to further integrate into a single piece of tissue. Eventually, the strands fully attach and fuse together, and the engineers can manufacture the strands in any length they want and can mimic real articular cartilage by printing strands vertically and then horizontally to mimic the natural architecture. However, the mechanical properties are inferior to those of natural cartilage, but better than the cartilage that is made using hydrogel scaffolding. That's all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for having joined us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.